So we're gonna be reading from Isaiah chapter 64. You have some Bibles in front of you. I'm gonna be going beyond the lectionary in um, the assigned verses, trying to set some context. So if you wanna open them up, um, I'll be reading in a couple of different versions as well. Uh, But this is Isaiah 64. It says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you, as when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil. Come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come to help to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But when we continued to sin against them, you were angry. How then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf and like the wind our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you for you have hidden your face from us and have given us over to our sins. Yet you, Lord, are our father. We are the clay, you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. Oh, look on us, we pray, for we are all your people. Your sacred cities have become a wasteland. Even Zion is a wasteland, Jerusalem a desolation. Our holy and glorious temple where our ancestors praised you has been burned with fire and all that we treasured lies in ruins. After all this, Lord, will you hold yourself back? Will you keep silent and punish us beyond measure? Memories. Um, Thanksgiving and uh, birthdays, which I just celebrated one last week, and upcoming uh, Christmas time holidays help us to step away, perhaps, at times from the hubbub and the hullabaloo and the riffraff of this season to think about where we've come from, where we've been, and how, um, how we celebrate. I remember growing up... Um, Each year we would have family traditions that were kind of unspoken. We all knew them. We all prepared for them. We all knew what was going to happen. Uh, Coming up towards Christmas, uh, we would always celebrate Christmas Eve by going to the church that we grew up in. They would usually have service around 6 o'clock, and we would have our presents underneath the tree from mom and dad. And each year we would get to open one present before Christmas Eve service, and we would go home and open the rest as we awaited our Santa presents the following day. I'm not trying to step on toes of Santa and where we all are as families with that. Um, But in our house, he existed and his penmanship was very similar to my mother's left hand, okay? Um, On one uh, particular Christmas Eve, I remember it was always the strategic pick because you only had one and there was, you know, five or six or whatever underneath the tree. And and it was either the, do you want to go with the big one Do you want to go with the heavy one? Do you want to go with the small one that looks like a video game? Do you want to go with this other one that could be pajamas or underwear? I mean, it was always the gambling game. And one year I remember uh, opening this present. It was probably the size of this Bible, a little bit thicker, and it was heavy. And I just had no idea what it was. So I picked it out and I unwrapped it and I I was a 
I was a mess as a kid. Um, I really reveled in the receiving of gifts as a child and not so much the giving of gifts. Um, I could have used a stern talking to once or twice or a hundred times, probably. Um, but I remember anxiously anticipating what this was going to be, even pack, picking it out a couple hours prior to. So I unwrapped it and I was looking at it, opened the box, and it was change that had been rolled up into those, those rolls. And I was very disappointed with my $5.72 of pennies rolled together. It was heavy, but it let me down. Like we have memories. Um, I don't know why that one was my go-to. When I prepare sermons, sometimes they're a bit sloppy. And this week, I've been out of, the, out of the game for a few weeks, and I figured, oh, I know that this slide will be up here, and I, could just, I can rip out a story, I'm sure of it. And that's the one that I give to you. <laughs> Memories. Um, I think as you're sitting here, though, you can think back to your childhood. You can think back to maybe even last year or a couple years and just thinking through the things that have been so meaningful to you and perhaps how they've changed from 12-year-old Josh who needed a stern talking to to 33-year-old Josh who probably still needs a stern talking to every here and there. Uh, and just the way that, that Christmas is, is different for us. In, in my house, it's different now because I'm not the one that's just receiving the gifts. I've kind of stopped caring about that. Um, now I've got a son and a dog they depend on me, <laughs> you know, like it's, the mindset has, has totally shifted. And as you sit here, perhaps you're thinking through um, memories, where you've been, where you're going, uh, your story. For some of you, as you sit here, walking through Thanksgiving and Christmas is incredibly difficult because of memories, for some of us, as we sit here, we might be thinking that our best years are behind us and now we're into uncharted territory. For some of you, as you begin to look back, um, there's a different reaction where it can only be better than what it used to be. Thinking about bouncing from house to house and from dads to moms and to whoever else is, and you just kind of play that pinball game of trying to make people happy. For some of us, memories aren't a great thing. For some of us, memories are a hopeful thing but we all have them and we all try to, to wrestle with them. In this passage, um, Israel is, is thinking back to a fonder time. They've, they've been through exile. They've been basically through, through hell and they're back. Most scholars would say they're back in the land in this chapter and they're kind of looking around thinking, what in the world is going on here? God, are you with us? Are you for us? Um, what's happening? And they they hold on to the memories of the past when God was good and God was active and God was powerful. And they hold on hope that in everything that's going to happen from here on out, he would demonstrate that again. And throughout this prayer, the one that we just read, sometimes they um, demonstrate real force with that. It's not the humble dinnertime prayer of, dear God, Please bless this food. Amen. It's, God, you're going to bless this food now. The McDonald's that I have in front of me will chemically transform so that it brings nutrients and health to my body in Jesus' name. They're, they're calling something into existence that is, is not there. And if we could tap into it, we might say it borders on 
disrespect, but in that, I think they're giving us a model of what that prayer looks like, and we'll try to connect some, some of these dots as we go along. In the larger context of this passage, backing up to Isaiah chapter 63, beginning in verse seven, um, the passage that we're looking at, Isaiah 64, one through 12, is set within this larger context. It's what's called a lament. It's where uh, Israel is pleading with God to be the person that he's supposed to be, to be the person that he's been in the past. And they begin like this, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord. I'm now reading from the English Standard Version, so they might be a little bit different with yours. That word there, the steadfast love, is actually from the root chesed, which means uh, commitment. And it's in the plural, which is really weird. It's basically saying, I will remember, and not only am I going to remember, but I'm going to recount, I'm going to retell, I'm going to proclaim all these things that you did in the past to demonstrate your commitment to us and your unfailing love for us. I will call those out and hold you accountable to them. I will recount also the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord has granted us and the great goodness to the house of Israel that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. The poet here is laying this on thick. It's the kindnesses of Yahweh that have been enacted in the history of their people, now set in the past. It's a memory, but it's a memory that takes root and has meaning for them. He continues, for he said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their savior in all their affliction. He was afflicted and the angel of his presence saved them in his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. This is who God is in their mind. It's the one who heaps on acts of commitment over and over and over, and all these are from his compassion and his mercy and his goodness. They've seen that, they've experienced it, but now it's a memory. These people that are praying this, uh, this psalm, more or less, are, again, in the midst of difficulty, tragedy, suffering, it turns on a dime here in verse 10. It says, but in spite of all this goodness, in spite of God's goodness and his mercy and his grace and his loving kindness and his commitment, but in spite of that, they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Don't go too Trinitarian on me here a bit. This is basically just saying they saw what Yahweh was doing and they didn't care. They just rebelled against the goodness of God. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy and he himself fought against them. Continues, then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. So here, what we have is Israel in rebellion against God, against a good God and forcing, in a sense, Yahweh to take on the role of, of enemy. One scholar says, just as impossible as an attitude of permissive indulgence, abetting the decline of the people into hardness of heart. Woo! Woo! That's good writing. Let's break it down a little bit slower. Just as impossible is an attitude of permissive indulgence, abetting the decline of the people into hardness of heart. Just as impossible is this idea that you just kind of sit back and let people just even get 
harder and harder in their hearts against whatever is going on. Just as it's impossible for someone who loves anyone else to allow that to happen, it's also impossible to have an attitude of indifference reflecting passing fancy rather than steadfast love. We read this section where Israel is in rebellion and we see God becoming the enemy and we think, whoa, whoa, whoa. God is all peaches and cream and roses. Enemy? I don't think so. We sing songs at church that says God fights for us, so this text is bunk. A lot of times in our culture, we have this idea that love and tolerance does not include judgment of any sort, but here we have a God who is enacting this, this judgment upon his people. We also have this idea that God is just kind of up there in the sky because that's where God is. And when this judgment is happening, he's sitting up there saying, I'm finally getting to punish these people. You know what I mean? Don't make me take us back to the far side comic. Okay, I will. It's the guy walking down the street with a piano hanging over his head with the rope and the, the God character with his hand over the smite button and this evil laugh like... Do I smite him now or do I smite him later? Like sometimes we, we have these very strange conceptions of God where he's either all peaches and cream and love and, and roses or we have this picture of God where he's just waiting for us to sin and then to pounce on us. This is not what's happening in the text. Israel had been building up years and years and years and years of recalcitrance. They're basically seeing God's goodness and his grace and his mercy and his, his acts of commitment that they have been receiving. And they say, you know what? That's great, but I'm gonna do whatever I want to do. Does this sound familiar? An author named uh, Becky Pippert says, think how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? If you see a stranger on the street, and hopefully this isn't even true of you, but if you see someone that you don't know, don't care about, are not involved in their life, if you see them making a poor life decision, probably you're not gonna step in and say, listen, I think you're making a poor life decision right now. But if that person was someone, your, your son, your daughter, your friend, your family, your blood, and you see them making these destructive choices, Hopefully you step in. She continues, far from it. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is the opposite of love. And the final form of hate is indifference. For God to allow this to take place in the midst of rebellion, for him not to step in and do something in the midst of it to try to bring his people back, it would have been indifference. And at the end of that, it would have been Hatred. We've, we've had to encounter a lot of tough passages over the last few months, uh, one of which is in 1 Timothy, where we see Paul wrestling with sinfulness within the church. And after trying to deal with a couple of troublemakers, he basically says, hand them over to Satan. Within the community, they're nothing but toxic We've tried every last effort to get them to understand this love and to, to live in light of it. Our only option now is to hand them over with the hopes that that will be the impetus to bring them back. 
So here we see God, in a sense, kind of stepping into the picture in a way that we might not want him to be stepping into the picture, but nonetheless, he plays the role of the enemy in an attempt to bring his people back. From there, he begins to remember. It says that he remembered the days of old. I believe the NIV actually says that Israel is the one remembering here. That's, that's a rough translation. It seems like Yahweh is the one remembering. Specifically, he's remembering Moses and how it was through the calling of one servant that he was going to bring his people back. Take that idea and just tuck it in the back of your head. And now we see Israel speaking again and they begin uh, a barrage of questions. Where is he who brought them up from the sea? Where is he who put uh, in the midst of them his Holy Spirit? Where are your zeal and your might, the stirring of your inner parts and your compassion? Israel now is in the midst of God's judgment and they still begin to ask these questions about who God is and what God is doing and it leads to accusations more or less in Isaiah 63, 17, it says, O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? What Israel is saying here is, this is your fault, God. The fact that this is so messed up, it's on you because you've treated us like you've treated Pharaoh. You've taken our hearts that were so soft and receptive to you and you've turned it into hardness and now look at us. Look how far away we are. They've kind of launched into this theme of accusation and questioning and kind of putting God on trial. And in the midst of that, they are petitioning God. We see in Isaiah 63 verse 15, it says, look down from heaven and see. If only you would see what's happening, what you've been a part of creating, if only you would see that, you'd fix it. There's an echo here of Exodus 2 where the people are crying out in the midst of judgment, bondage, and servitude. It says, and God saw and he knew. And that brings about their deliverance. And they're thinking, if God would just look on us and see what's actually happening, we'd be okay. So we have this whole matrix of suffering and petition and accusation and question and doubt and all this underlying stirring the pot sort of stuff. This is Israel's prayer to God. Do something. Do something now. And that brings us to our text in Isaiah 64. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Oh, that you would completely separate the barrier between us and you, that the mountains would tremble before you and when fire, as with twigs ablaze and causes water to boil, come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. If you would just show up and deliver us Everyone would follow you if you would just show up and do what you've said you would do in the midst of our rebellion, people would love you. If you would just deliver us, it could change everything. Walter Brueggemann says this unit of the poem begins with an abrupt and very strong imperative. It's a bid that Yahweh should tear open the distancing cover between heaven where Yahweh is and earth where Jerusalem is and come down into the situation of need. Oh, that you would tear 
rend the heavens, tear them apart, the barrier. Oh, that you would join us in our moment of need. Can you hear the undertones of Christmas? Can you hear the sleigh bells jingling? Can you hear where we're going with this sinful people saying, we are a complete mess. Oh, that you would show up. Oh, that you would come down into the situation of need. This is lament. This is not dinnertime prayer. This is not going into our quiet room and reading Oswald Chambers. This is not the daily bread. This is a passionate plea and petition with tear-stained faces, clenched fists, and clenched teeth. This is relationship where it's not just a a one-way monologue of I need, I want, gimme, 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 gimme. It's entering into this story in a complex way and wanting God to act. What's so incredibly challenging about this is the underlying roots of this story. But here, before we get there, this is lament. It's the disconnect between belief and reality. We have all these things that we hold true. God is good. He's got all these committed acts of love and steadfastness and and all these fancy King James words that we don't use in normal life. Oh, Kate, I praise your steadfast love for me. We don't talk like that to normal people, um, but yet we have these understandings about who God is, but then when reality hits, for many of you, as you sit here, you say, that is a bunch of crap. Where are these committed acts? Where is the steadfast love? Where are these things? What Israel was, was wanting to happen to us, show up as you showed up back in the past when fire would be there and the mountains would shake. Show me something big. Show me something good. Show me something where I can brag to my friends and say, this is gonna be cool. Show me something where if you would just do it, then everyone in the world would follow you. And that's often not how God is operating here, but there's still this disconnect for a lot of us between the things that we believe and reality when it actually hits. And we have to do a lot of convincing ourselves that these things are actually true, even though we're standing in the midst of these things. This is lament. It's the tension between the already and the not yet. As Christians, we believe that Jesus' death and resurrection have changed everything, all of human history, Everything from here on out is viewed in the shadow of that significant and climactic and beautiful life-altering act. But we also know that we live lives where there's doubt, suffering, death, brokenness, relationship issues, financial issues, any number of things that don't seem to go with Jesus saying, I am Lord over everything. And we live in the midst of that, and that brings about our sense of lament. It's also a cry for justice in the midst of injustice. I do not want to get political, but we live in a world filled with injustices. We live in a society filled with racial issues, gender issues, um, class issues, education issues, there's all these things that at the core of them, they're injustices. And our prayers at times are tame. Oh, that the 
that you would just rend the heavens and come down. Oh, that you would show up in a way that allows us to see you. That these committed acts wouldn't just be the stories that we read in this book, but they'd be the things that we see each and every day. This is lament. It's a cry for justice in the midst of injustice. Lament is active. It's not passive. Lament is bold. It's not complacent. We know lament well, and so did Israel. But in this context, their understanding of what was happening was very, 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 very different. This is not just a... a a separate claim where their life didn't match up with what was going on because as the verse continues, it says, we continued to sin against your ways and you were angry. How then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. The underlying sentiment of this line here is all of our righteous acts are like menstrual rags. Put yourself in a ancient Jewish context for a second and think about uncleanliness. This is like the coup de gras of things unclean. Everything that we had to offer wasn't worth anything. And we were all there. All of us have become like this one who is unclean, cast out from the community, cast out from, from God's house and from God's people. We all shrivel up like a leaf and like the wind, our sins are sweeping us away. There's a tie between confession and petition. You don't just show up and say, God be just, God be good, God be loving when your life is a complete mess. The psalmist knew this, the poets knew this, everyone in Israel knew this, that you don't just start asking for these big things without first asking for forgiveness, and that's what's happening here in this text. He continues on, you, Lord, you are our Father. In the midst of the brokenness, in the midst of the sin, in the midst of all these things, you're still committed to us in a very rich, meaningful way. We are the clay, you are the potter. We're all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. Look on us as we pray, for we are all your people. And then finally concluding this section, after all this, Lord, will you hold yourself back? Will you keep silent and punish us beyond measure? Israel's prayer here ends with a note of, I have no idea. It ends with a note of, I don't know how Yahweh is going to receive this and I don't know how Yahweh is going to respond to this. They're left in the middle of uncertainty yet again. I feel like it's been a theme here in our little community of we keep coming back to belief not adding up to reality. We keep coming back to moments of suffering and brokenness and doubt, and we keep coming back to these ideas of questioning. But underlying all of this is a hope that regardless of what's going on in our life, that God would rend the heavens and come down. We started this talk by thinking about memories and they include for me opening a gift of $7 worth of nickels or whatever. I do hope though that as we hear the echoes of Isaiah in our life, we can, we can 
build in application. One, in how we pray to God. Two, in how we combine confession and petition. Three, how we are at least understanding that this world is broken and needs God to show up. But four, we also understand that this has happened. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Oh, that you would, that you would enter into our moment of suffering and weakness and tragedy. We feel so alone at times and we feel so isolated at times, but at the heart of the Christmas story, it's not Macy's, it's not sales, it's not a box of $7.50 of nickels. It's God entering into our story in a climactic way. This was not a fire and a mountain-shaking way, though. This was a subtle, beautiful, entrance of a king who was born in the lowliest of stables, of a God who becomes like us in every way yet without sin, of Christ who understands our weakness and our brokenness and does not sit in the heavens next to his smite button but weeps when we weep laughs when we laugh, and is engaged in a powerful way despite our constant faithlessness. When we're up in arms and say, God, would you please do something, even when our life doesn't match up, he's still present, he's still powerful, he's still reigning and ruling over every aspect. I hope that as we begin to think through what this is all about over these next four weeks, we begin to see the Christmas story, maybe not in a new way, but just maybe in a real way, where we begin to think about how our story is intersecting with the story of Christ and how that should be something that changes everything. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. That's a memory What's interesting now is he's working through us to be his hands and his feet, to be agents of justice in the midst of injustice, to be agents of reconciliation in the midst of brokenness and pain, to be ambassadors of the gospel, which is hope and joy and peace and love. It's my prayer that tonight we would begin to reorient our lives around those uh, simple truths, to begin to live in light of them and to celebrate our awesome Savior who rent the heavens and came down.